The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Great economic report today, the GDP report. Things are looking good. If we were to get under the hood, what we saw is that there is continued resilience in consumer spending, but it did ease. The problem is the fourth quarter and into 2023. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective. From D.C.'s top names. Maybe I'm old-fashioned, but I think that marriage ought to be between a man and a woman. It's 2022, and Governor McMaster wants to ban same-sex marriage. You just heard that tonight, folks. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The economy strikes back. Welcome to the fastest hour in politics as the White House cheers today's GDP report showing the economy back to growth. But what does it mean for interest rates, for the prospect of a recession, and for the midterm elections? We'll talk about it with Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Later, Wall Street votes with donations, of course. Ahead of Election Day, we follow the money with Bloomberg's Shanali Basik. Vladimir Putin denies he's planning to use nuclear weapons, just as the Pentagon rejects a ban on using nukes for conventional threats. We're going to talk about it all with our signature panel, Bloomberg Politics contributors Jeannie Shanzano and Rick Davis here for the hour. The big news this morning before... Tech earnings stole the market's attention. Gross domestic product rising by 2.6%, rebounding from a negative number. Great news for the White House. You heard President Biden as he came out the door on his way to the chopper, flying today to Syracuse, where he's been upstate New York. Took a look at Micron's new plant that they're building there for computer chips. He was all smiling. Great economic report today. The GDP report. Things are looking good. Yeah, well, as I read in the terminal, though. Economy shows worst yet to come as cooling is just starting. The recent rebound is looking like a high water mark for the expansion. So what does that mean for the economic message coming out of the White House with less than two weeks to go? Mark Sandy joins us now for his insights. Of course, the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Joe. Thanks for having me. So President Biden is calling out the doomsayers. He says this is further evidence today that a recovery is continuing to, quote, power forward. Is he right? Well, uh, it's it, moving forward. I, I don't know if I'd use the word power, but it definitely is uh, uh, moving forward. You know, it does dispel, I think, the concern that the economy is in recession. It's okay. not, nor has it been up to this point in time. But, it, it, you know, it's struggling to grow. We spoke today with Cecilia Rouse, of course, heads the White House Council of Economic Advisors. Her job today was to make all of this sound orderly. Listen to how she put it. If we were to get under the hood, what we saw is that there is continued resilience in consumer spending, but it did ease. So that is consistent with what the Fed is trying to do. We also saw that, saw that businesses continue to invest. Uh, but again, that is slowing as the Fed, uh, as we would hope. She seems to be pointing to a soft landing, Mark, without using those words. Uh, and we know the president still thinks one is possible. Do you? Yeah, I do. Uh, and, and she makes a good point. I mean, consumers and businesses remain uh, in, in the game. Uh, they're, you know, they're 
they're not spending with gusto. They're not investing aggressively, but they're doing their part. Yep. As long as that continues, I think uh, the economy has a fighting chance of getting through without a recession. So, yeah, I think soft landing is still a, a real possibility. But, you know, obviously having said that, as the Fed is raising interest rates here aggressively, trying to quell inflation, recession risks are going to be awfully high over the next year or so. Well, yeah, so if I asked you that question in reverse, you know, is a recession still possible, you, you would say, yeah, that too. Good point. That's, that's exactly right. You know, my base case, my most likely scenario is we make our way through, but I wouldn't argue huh. with anyone too strongly if they said, no, we're going into recession. The biggest contributor to growth here was net exports, Mark. Is that is that sustainable? No. Uh, Especially if you're going into a global recession and you're counting on other partners to contribute to growth. Yeah, exactly. I, I think the trade deficit will continue to widen. we got a bit of a reprieve here in the third quarter. I think that's more timing, technical matters. But uh, the trade deficit is going to continue to widen now. So that's not going to be a source of growth. That'll continue to be a, a headwind going forward. Residential investment uh, was pretty tough. I mean, it fell off a cliff here, down over 26%, continuing a trend. Uh, how worried are you about a real crash in the housing market in the next year? Uh, I don't think a crash. I mean, obviously, it's correcting. Prices are down and they'll continue to fall. I mean, affordability has been hammered by the run-up in mortgage rates from north of 7% on a 30-year fix. That's more than double what it was just a little over a year ago. And that combines with the previously high house prices. People just can't afford that. Mm-hmm. The demand has fallen and prices are weakening. But I don't expect a crash, primarily because I don't expect a lot of foreclosures and distressed sales. I mean, so, uh, borrowers in recent years have been uh, of good quality, high credit scores, and they're, they're taking on plain vanilla 30-year, 15-year huh. rate mortgages. So I just don't expect a, a lot of foreclosures. And if we don't get a lot of foreclosures, I don't, I don't think we'll get a crash. A lot different than where we were in 2007. Yeah, there's no comparison. You know, back then, the quality of the borrower was very low. It's prime, obviously. Right. And the mortgage products were just bizarre, you know, two-year exploding arms, uh, AM loans. I mean, just a lot of weird stuff that you know, didn't perform well when it came under a lot of stress. But a 30-year mortgage, a 15-year mortgage, you know, the rates are going to stay low for these borrowers. I, so I think that takes a lot of pressure off. Well, Mark, Sandy, what do we have to look forward to between now and the midterms? We talked so much about, I guess, the White House and Democrats will – We'll try to, to turn this GDP report into a good story today and say, no, by the way, we were not in a recession, as you made clear. The next couple of weeks, though, we're creeping up on another Fed meeting. What will happen that day as people prepare to vote? Well, they're going to raise rates. They've told us pretty clearly that they're going to raise rates three-quarters of a percentage point. Does this guarantee uh, that? Way. Yeah, I don't know anything that would change that. The hurdle for changing that is awfully high. Yeah. I mean, we get one more data point tomorrow, the employment cost index, which is important because that's the best measure of wage growth. And the, uh, the Fed is trying to slow the job market, slow that wage growth to get inflation back in. So that's that's an important number. But I, it's hard to envisage a, uh, any number that would dissuade the Fed from not raising rates three quarters of a point when they meet uh, in the week uh, next week. Wow. Considering everything we hear uh, from the White House about the strength of the economy, historically strong job market, historically low unemployment, then you hear from Republicans, this is the worst economy. Inflation is is through the roof, and it's become the biggest issue on the campaign trail. A lot of people cite the economy as their biggest concern when they talk about uh, preparing to vote in November. Who's right? 
They're, well, they're both right. They depends are? On what, yeah, it depends on which, you know, your prism. I mean, uh, the Democrats are right that the job market's very strong. Everyone has a job. Unemployment's very low. Mm-hmm. Uh, layoffs are about as low as they've ever been. So that's all good. But if people uh, but, can't you know, afford to live, then that doesn't matter, right? Yeah, well, that's the point. I mean, Republicans are right that inflation is just painfully high, and you know that that we can't stand that for very long. And so the Fed's raising interest rates very aggressively to quell it. So, you know, uh, I, I think it depends on you know your your, your perspective and your prism and, and which part of the economic elephant you're touching. Yeah. Um, you know, but uh, you know, I think it's fair to say over the next 12, 18 months, it's going to feel a lot more uncomfortable uh, that you know, more and more people are going to think this is a bad economy rather than a good one because the Fed has to slow growth, has to get that inflation down, and that's going to take some uh, some pain and suffering, I think, financially. We're strapping in. Mark Sandy, Chief Economist, Moody's Analytics. Many thanks for jumping on the line with us, as always, on Bloomberg. Any, anytime, Joe. Thanks for the opportunity. Let's assemble the panel just to get a quick take from Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors, of course, our signature panel here on Sound On. It sure looks like the White House is trying to keep the ball in the air here. You know, everyone's on to Amazon and Apple earnings. But I mentioned that tweet uh, from the president, Rick, for months, doomsayers have been arguing the economy is in a recession, indicating that this proves it is not. And he's they're, they're calling out Republicans uh, in a news release. In fact, name checking uh, some of them, including Kevin Brady, who called the GDP report uh, the cl- claiming it was a, a, a about ghost growth. The politics behind this are running pretty thick here. Is this good news or bad news, Rick? You know, look, I mean, I think this is going to be a good news day for him, uh, for the president. He mm-hmm. he obviously jumped on it and tried to drive it first thing this morning, which was smart. Yep. Get out there and define the uh, numbers the way you want them. Because as uh, Mark Zandi pointed out, I mean, it's just in the eye of the beholder, right? I mean, if you're Democrats, you can crow about job growth <laughs> right. and, and, and spending. And, and if you're Republicans, you can talk about the pain of inflation. Um, the reality is people have gotten used to the pain of inflation, right? No matter what happens, if you still see those grocery prices up, if you see gas prices start ticking up, um, you know, you feel a pinch in your wallet. You're not taking that vacation this winter. You know, you ain't going to put on those skis. That's that's what you're feeling at home, and all this just becomes noise. Uh, well, sure, and I think People we're aren't entering about noise GDP. phase. We're not talking about GDP over dinner tonight. I'm assuming, Jeannie, uh, uh, and the fact of the matter is, if the White House has to celebrate it not being a recession, you've sort of lost that war already, haven't you? You have. And this is a really difficult sell for the White House. Obviously, the GDP up growth is good. But, you know, the reality is this is the old tale of two realities, macro versus micro. The macro numbers are good. Look at the micro. Look at the U.S. Census household survey that Bloomberg reported on just the other day. Over 40 percent of households feel it somewhat or very difficult to cover their expenses. Mm -hmm. That is the highest number we've seen in two, almost three years. That's the reality people are feeling on the ground mortgage rates topping seven percent and the white house is you know required now to go out and celebrate these good numbers so how you do that is a very difficult dance and you know it's the reality the difference between an economist and a political scientist or or somebody looking at these numbers they're looking at very different numbers which tell two very different tales the president's on his way to pennsylvania rick does telling this story make him sound tone deaf uh, it could. I mean, if he doesn't, if he starts saying, oh, you're so much better off today because of GDP yeah. growth, people are going to scratch their heads. Well, that'll be uh, the conversation tomorrow. Jeannie and Rick with us. Our signature panel is back with more from here in Washington. 
I'm Joe Matthew. We'll check traffic and markets on the way. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. The White House trying, trying to tell a good story about the economy, pointing to strong numbers in the job market. Today's GDP report trying to fan those flames a little bit before the election, knowing, as we're all reading here on the terminal, this GDP report today shows, well, the worst is yet to come. This is the high watermark for the expansion right here, right now. A lot of people are predicting a recession next year, including some very smart people here at Bloomberg. In our economics department, it's pretty grim. The president today taking the road on uh, the word on the road, I should say, to Syracuse. That's where Micron's building that big chip plant is up there trying to, again, get the story told just as we learn that House Republicans are launching an investigation in what they are calling potential misuse of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, one of the other levers that the White House has been pulling here to try to create a better economic environment before everyone votes. This is just the beginning, right? The Oversight Committee is going to be busy. Let's reassemble the panel. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, the White House knows this kind of stuff is coming here, right, Jeannie? It's just a matter of getting through the midterms, and then it's going to be investigation heaven. Yeah. And Joe, you just said it as good as it gets, both economically and, you know, in, in it's hard to imagine, but maybe even politically for this White House, because as we expect the House to move Republican, we are going to be looking at these kinds of investigations, this kind of oversight of we're seeing, you know, reported about the SPR, but also we're hearing talk about a potential Biden impeachment. That's, you know, there's already been calls for that. We know before, but the minute they have the numbers to do that, it's going to be very hard for Kevin McCarthy to resist that call. So the administration is facing real headwinds vis-a-vis the House. And that's going to be true whether the Democrats are able to narrowly retain the Senate or not. The House yeah, can go right. forward with this oversight. Is this a real uh, investigation or would it be, Rick, or is this just the type of messaging that we'll, we should expect from a Republican House? You know, it just depends upon the uh, the leadership of the committee and whether or not they look at this as a bipartisan opportunity to try and get to the bottom of it. I mean, like there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who are concerned yeah. about these repeated releases of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, not for the stated reason of the reserve, which is to ensure that we have a ready supply of gas in case of shortages, but to manipulate price. And so mm-hmm. Republicans on that committee aren't the only one asking questions as to whether or not we're supposed to be using this pro for this. House Committee on Oversight and Reform. I mean, they would have subpoena power. Is it, is it worth using that power in this particular case? We're talking, as Jeannie said, uh, all the way up to the idea of impeachment. 
You know, look, I mean, you only have to use a subpoena if people aren't willing to cooperate. I mean, sure. no indication at this stage that Jennifer Granholm, for instance, Secretary of Energy, is, is going to, like, uh, avoid uh, testifying to Congress. So uh, I think it's you got to wait and see uh, what people's reactions are to this. But, uh, look, Republicans aren't the only ones who've got concerns about it. I mean, you know, even the folks running OPEC have said, hey, you guys are trying to do price manipulation. Same problem you have with us. Now you're trying to do the same thing. Well, Jeannie, I don't know uh, if if we're going to be talking so much about impeaching Joe Biden. Marjorie Taylor Greene would tell you that. Uh, But there are serious conversations about an impeachment beginning with the Secretary of Homeland Security, right? Make this a border issue. I just wonder why spending time on the SPR when the Biden administration is already out with a plan to start refilling it. Well, you know, there has been bipartisan, rather, bickering on the stockpile for a long time. So this is nothing new. It's always been a politicized issue. We heard John Barrasso from Wyoming come out when when the Biden administration first announced what it was doing. And he said something to the effect of this is not for a Democrat election crisis. And so these are questions that they're going to ask. But what they haven't addressed is the fact that presidents from both parties have ordered sales from this. That's after the first Gulf War, Hurricane Katrina, Libya, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so this is a long time issue that has, you know, erupted many times over the last several decades and will continue to. But to your point, this type of investigation at all levels is going to continue. You mentioned Alejandro Mayorkas. People talk about Anthony Blinken. Merrick Garland certainly is going to get hit. Kamala Harris. And of course, Joe Biden. Those are probably the top five. We're going to see investigations, talk of impeachment for the next two years if the Republicans take the House. And that's the reality. And, you know, there was a time we all lived through no impeachments. We're going to be living through impeachment heaven or heaven talk of impeachment for a long time. Uh, Rick, the the national average gallon of gas today, AAA, $3.76. The White House will tell you what is that? That's down a dollar and 15 or something like that. Where where does that factor into people's decision making? It's it's obviously not as low as people want it, but it has come down quite a bit. Yeah, it's come down quite a bit. Uh, people got stung over the summer when it was so high. Uh, I think that it obviously is better than... It was than, above five but, in June. Yeah, above five, and it was painful. I mean, we saw people's reaction. I mean, it was coming out in the surveys, too. People were angry. Uh, and so uh, this is an improvement to that. But then the offset to that are food prices, where they've right. skyrocketed. Yep. And so, you know, what you're saving now for a gallon of gas, you're spending on milk and, and, and bread. So the trade-off isn't good. Well, you know, we've uh, we've just found that direct correlation with gas prices and the president's approval rating, both of which are going to factor in to the results on election night. Whenever those are going to be complete, we could be talking about it for weeks. A lot more to follow as we turn to Wall Street votes and follow the money with Shanali next. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. So, you know, everyone wants to pick a winner here, and Wall Street is no exception as we look ahead to election night. Even if sometimes the politics don't agree, everyone wants to be in good favor once the winners are chosen. So where's the money going this time? Bloomberg's Shanali Basik has been doing great reporting on this. She has the cell phone numbers of the biggest bankers on Wall Street, and she joins us now. Shanali, welcome. 
what issues are Wall Street focused on? What's most important right now? It's so interesting because there are so many mixed feelings on Wall Street between personal interests and professional ones. Yeah. And when you look at it, the first two years of the Biden administration has really been defined on Wall Street by tough regulation, uh, a historic amount of rulemaking by SEC Chair Gary Gensler, as the House Republicans really like to point out uh, with some regularity. And so what does that mean for the second half when there's kind of potentially more control in Congress from the Republican side of the party? Does that mean that some of these regulators particular can be reined in? Can that mean their budgets can be constrained? And those are certainly things that a lot of Wall Street is looking out for and in some cases uh, pressing for. So that seems to fulfill the stereotype a bit that Wall Street uh, at least views Republicans as more business friendly, certainly when it comes to regulations, to your point. Is it is it fair to say that out loud? Uh, absolutely. And listen, you, what does this mean? It means the, the eyes are all on the SEC and who controls the budget there and who regulates them. The eyes are all on uh, the, the Fed, of course, and what kind of pressure there is on the Fed to uh, control the inflation story versus yeah. the direction of rates. And, you know, what what levers do they actually have at the end of the day? And I have to push this right to the lawmakers to watch. How can you not? Because sometimes it's not about just what seats are up. Sometimes yeah, right. it's about who is gaining more power as some of these seats start to change. And one of the pers- people that comes up in a lot of my conversations is Senator Susan Collins because of uh, her place as taking over as a top Republican on the Appropriations Committee. Meanwhile, Patrick McHenry on the House Financial Service Committee is also very highly watched in Jason Smith, who serves on budget and ways and yeah. means. And so, of course, you know, let's see how the tides turn after the midterms. But these are certainly folks that are considered allies, if you will, of a lot of the agenda on Wall Street. Does Shanali, does Wall Street care as much as we like to think about crypto regulations or or, or just so much other stuff to be focused on right now? Well, what's interesting is some of the biggest donors this cycle are coming from the crypto industry. Think Sam Bankman-Fried. Although a lot of the giving had gone to primaries, you have Sam Bankman-Fried emerging as this massive political donor, yeah. mostly known in the democratic sphere. Some of the money goes to crypto interests, but a lot of it is said to go to pandemic preparedness. But his number hmm. two guy, or you know, one of his deputies rather, Ryan Salem, who works at the Bahamian subsidiary area, but you know, also an American himself, he is one of the top Republican donors in the United States now. And so you have two folks in the same kind of, uh, kind of world here who are fighting yeah. for two different things. This is fascinating. And I love, that she, I love that you're dropping names on the air here. What are, they, what are you hearing uh, over the clinking of cocktails when 24 comes up? What does Wall Street think wow. about another um, Donald Trump run, or, or is that not part of the conversation right now? Well, I think it's very, very, very much a part of the conversation. And I thought it was going to be more of the conversation than the midterms. But a lot of government mm. affairs offices tell me that the midterms matter more. Mm. And the reason being is because the lawmakers at the end of the day have the control over the policy. But the sure. president has control over the uh, over the national discourse and rhetoric. And the question of Trump is very polarizing even on Wall Street. And that's the reality we're hearing that people are giving more, for example, quietly than they used to, more quietly than they used to because Uh of the polarization even among their peers on Wall Street. Well, that makes a lot of sense. She'll be with us on election night. I can't wait to to have you with us. Uh, Shanali Basak from Bloomberg, finance correspondent, talking a lot about politics these days. And Shanali, thank you. Uh, One of the hardest working people in the newsroom as we reassemble the panel Rick Davis has a good sense of this with his role as a partner at Stonecourt Capital. Jeannie Shanzano is with us as well. Bloomberg Politics contributors. 
Where do you see the money going, Rick? It's interesting. You know, is this more about influencing the outcome of a race or investing in the in the potential good graces of a potential winner? You know, that's a, it's a really good point. Uh, uh, a lot of people give money because they just want to be friends long term. You know, yeah. let's 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 get together. I'm going to write a, a, a check to your committee. But like those checks are small, twenty five hundred dollars here and that kind of thing. Uh, regulated money that goes straight to the member. Uh, the super PACs are where the big money go. And they're conceptually not even supposed to be associated with the campaign anyway. But you, you, your name gets out there. Uh, and you look like you're being supportive. The really big money tends to hide in the 501c4s where there's no identification. They just want the right person to pull the levers of power. Like Sonali said, uh, whether or not it's ripping off regulations that are currently on uh, because of this current administration or or the opposite. And and so there are a lot of places to play, and a lot of these guys who are really putting to to work big money uh, tend to do it uh, behind the scenes. There are more places to play, I guess you could say, than ever, uh, Jeannie. How dangerous is that for politics? It is. And I was so glad Sonali mentioned uh, Pat McHenry because he's been telegraphing, I should say more than telegraphing, talking about what he would do. And he's talking about allowing fintechs to grow, clarifying rules for crypto companies. And of course, much to the dismay of many Democrats, cracking down on the CFP Bureau. So, you know, you have a clear sense as to what he would do. And Democrats, in contrast, saying they would focus more on the issues they've been focused on already, like housing and consumer protection. And And, you know, the CFP, a part of their discussions as well, but certainly not in terms of a crackdown on its director. So you really do have a very good sense if you listen carefully to some of these folks who will potentially be be handling these committees where they're going to go. And that tells people where to put their money and what they hope to see and how to influence the conversation policy wise going forward. Regulation and taxes. This is what we're talking about on Wall Street and who has a better story to tell. A great panel. We'll be back with Rick and Jeannie. And thanks to Shanali for setting us straight as Wall Street votes on the fastest hour in politics. I'm Joe Matthew. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Vladimir Putin has no idea what you are talking about. Days of talk about a dirty bomb. And shocker, Vladimir Putin says there's no need for Russia to launch a nuke strike on Ukraine. Who brought that up? The West in recent years, and especially in recent months, has taken a number of steps to escalate. Well, as a matter of fact, they always play for escalation. There is nothing new here. This is the incitement of war in Ukraine. These are provocations around Taiwan, the destabilization of the global food and energy markets. So it's your fault, it turns out. Interesting, as this uh, speech is being delivered here, big speech by Vladimir Putin, uh, speaking uh, to a room full, as I read on the terminal of foreign policy experts, the West Wing trying to influence Moscow's friends and allies by showing, quote, how terrible Russia is, unquote really sore all the time, you know? 
But as this is happening, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, acknowledges, as Vladimir Putin mentions Taiwan, yet China actually is the great long-term threat. But right now, we're looking at you. Russian aggression does pose an immediate and sharp threat to our interests and values. And Putin's reckless reckless war of choice against Ukraine, the worst threat to European security since the end of World War II, has made that very clear for the whole world. And now from the Bloomberg Pentagon Bureau. Pentagon rejects ban on using nukes for conventional threats. This is interesting. The new national defense strategy rejecting limits on using nuclear weapons in the face of a conventional military threat. A lot of messaging going on here. As we reassemble the panel with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Getting a lot out of you guys today. I hope everyone ate their Wheaties. This is pretty important stuff here, though, uh, Rick. Does this actually tamp down talk of nukes, though? Well, it certainly changes the conversation. I mean, we entered the Obama or the Biden administration with conversations about no first strike capability, right? Yeah, this right. was what he talked about on the campaign trail. And this is a complete reversal of that. And not only is it an opportunity to use nuclear weapons, but in a conventional fashion. And and that, of course, plays right into the conversation that we've been having for the last month about uh, the saber rattling with nuclear weapons by Moscow. So uh, this is going to be a hot topic all summer. Uh, huh. I, I think the microcosm you talked about was it's all under the under the rubric of the fact that, you know, the biggest buildup in the world that's happening right now around nuclear weapons is yeah. with China. I find this fascinating, Jeannie. The Defense Department saying in this document uh, that, quote, by the 2030s, the U.S. will, for the first time in its history, face two major nuclear powers as strategic competitors and potential adversaries. In response, the U.S. will maintain a very high bar for nuclear employment without ruling out using the weapons in retaliation to a non-nuclear strategic threat to the homeland. That doesn't include NATO nations, does it? You know, it doesn't. And this is quite a difference from what we heard originally. Um, You know, for many people listening to and watching uh, Joe Biden on the campaign trail, he was talking about a sole purpose in terms of nukes, and that was deterrence. And all of a sudden, we are seeing him move away from that. Now, we have to be clear, a lot of that movement from this sole purpose language, and there was Mm -hmm. a great foreign affairs piece he wrote about this, all of that, not all, but a lot of that movement is because of pressure from our allies. And you also see this all over the document you're referencing, which is that our European and Asian allies have said that that language puts them in danger. And that is probably a good explanation as to why we're seeing this movement, because one thing Joe Biden has been committed to is building alliances, or as he thinks about it, rebuilding alliances that Donald Trump, you know, started to, uh, that he caused to deteriorate during his administration. But it has also angered a lot of people who are concerned about nuclear control. And they are saying that this is the wrong message to send because it is really raising the specter of a nuclear war at some point in the future. Well, that's that's a heck of a statement. Rick, is this really about the homeland or does this also apply to an Article 5 attack on a NATO country with this standoff right now in Europe? You know, look, all those um, rules already apply, right? I mean, there's nothing new when it relates to— But for a nuclear response to a conventional threat, specifically. Um, Again, I mean, it was never taken off the table. Uh, It was just that in this case, because we've got an updated national defense um, uh, report strategy, uh, that they put a lot of thought around it. And my suspicion is— 
uh, from everything I've heard and read uh, that they've put out of the Defense Department in the last two years, uh, this is really more to address um, the, the growing threat that China has. I mean, China had virtually no nuclear weapons uh, and just a few years ago and are now looking at having a thousand nuclear weapons before the end of the decade. Uh, this is the most advanced buildup we've ever seen. Well, what could be causing that, right? Yeah. You'd ask yourself. And then you overlay that with a much more aggressive uh, approach toward China that both the Trump administration and the Biden administration have been pursuing. And you've got an elixir for a new strategy when it comes to, to conventional uh, warfare that you might use you know, tactical nuclear weapons. How much of a problem is this going to be for progressive Democrats, Jeannie, uh, knowing that President Biden pledged, candidate Biden pledged, to declare the U.S. nuclear arsenal used only to deter or retaliate against a nuclear attack, not a conventional one. Yeah, I, I, we are already hearing from that group and others who are saying that this is, you know, uh, diametrically opposed to your commitment to a sole purpose of deterrence. Because, of course, what this does, it leaves open the possibility that the United States could strike first. And that is a real concern. And, you know, to Rick's point, the document is very clear. We're talking about twin threats from China and Russia. And for those of us who lived through 9-11 and, and the Obama years, this is a stark difference from the focus on, say, terrorist groups like the Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. While we still are hearing talk about that, there is a, a, you know, a real focus in this document on China and Russia as the threat. And no longer are we talking just about nukes, at least from the U.S. perspective, as deterrence only. And yeah. politically, the president is going to have to answer to that. He's going to be relying a good deal on Russia's incursion or attack against Ukraine to justify what he's saying here, or what at least what the Pentagon is saying here. Well, with all this talk of using nuclear weapons, it's worth sharing the story of Vasily Arkhipov. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. He was mentioned in this morning's Daybreak column, uh, which, by the way, I highly recommend you wake up, you look at the app, go to Daybreak, D-A-Y-B. A Soviet naval officer credited with single-handedly preventing a nuclear war. His story was the inspiration for the movie Crimson Tide. You guys remember this, right? Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman. The two officers fighting over whether to follow orders to war after the message from Washington was interrupted. We cannot launch our missiles unless both you and I agree. Uh, now, what are you waiting for? Me, sir. This is expressly why your command must be repeated. It requires my assent. I do not give it. And furthermore, it's a great movie. The real story, uh, by the way, hang on. Let's do this right. Let's dive first. <laughs> Excellent. You with me, Rick? This is okay. Here we go. Hold your breath, everybody. Dive. Dive. 1962. Here we go. We're going deep. The Cuban Missile Crisis. Arkhipov was second in command of the diesel powered submarine B 59. They were off the coast of Cuba when a U.S. Navy battle group spotted them and started dropping depth charges. The Soviet crew just like the movie, lost contact with Moscow, thought war was breaking out. And the captain wanted to launch a nuke, a nuclear torpedo. This guy I'm telling you about, Officer Arkhipov, disagreed. He refused to second the order and averted a nuclear war that certainly would have followed. They even made a documentary of this, the man who saved the world, it was called. And it happened on this day in history, in 1962. My question for the panel here is, what would happen today? The moral of the story here, right, is sort of personal integrity, personal uh, principle in a time of war. 
What would happen today, uh, Rick, in the war in Ukraine, for instance, if something like this came about or a different Russian military than was around in the Soviet times, no? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you would hope that they would actually be more cautious uh, about the use of a nuclear weapon. Uh, but we had a little bit of this uh, scene setter in the United States just a few years ago under the Trump administration, where there was some concern about nuclear weapons being used. And, and what safeguards do we have in place? And what are the rules that to- attached to it? And, and, and I think we, the good news is we learned that it, you know, President of the United States just can't press a button and launch nuclear weapons. Right. And so there's a much more elaborate process that that has safeguards. And so, uh, look, these are incredibly powerful weapons that can cause, you know, enormous destruction and start uh, wars that have no end. And and so you're, you're, it's good to find out that today we don't have uh, as many um, uh, uh, chances of having that kind of mistake yeah. made, if you want to call it that. But in this case... You also have to feel good about the fact that there are people in and around these weapon systems yes. that have a moral compass That's that where I'm going. let them be used unless they absolutely have to. And you do wonder if they would be there. I'm assuming that these redundancies uh, exist for the Russian military as well, Jeannie. Yeah, let's hope so. And and Joe, I'm happy to talk about this movie, Happier yeah. Than Talladega Nights, which you mentioned oh, yesterday. So yeah. the movies are See, improving, Joe Matthews. I got you back. Oh, oh, just, just stick with me. I'll tell you what. Uh, apologies <laughs> and thanks to our panel Rick and Jeannie that's one ping only please we'll meet you back here tomorrow on the fastest hour in politics this is Bloomberg collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers doers and innovators leading the way from design and culture to technology science and entertainment Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.